welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas. Unfortunately, Nick can't be here with us today, but I have the distinct privilege of interviewing Bruxy Cavey. So, Bruxy, why don't you say hi? Hi, Thomas. It's a privilege to be hanging out with you. Well, Bruxy, we're so thankful that you've uh, taken the time to do this. As you know, we've been going through a a little mini-series on what is the gospel, and it just so happens you have literally written the book on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I've been uh, started tracking with your podcast, and I love what you guys are doing. You are, I think, a breath of fresh air, so thanks for this podcast, and I'm glad that we're getting to know each other. Well, so am I, Bruxy, and it uh, means a lot for us to hear you say that, because uh, the things that you're saying really, really resonate with us as well, and we think you're doing great work for the kingdom. Uh, thanks. So you, you've written this book, Reunion, The Good News of Jesus for Seekers, Saints, and Sinners. What what led you to, to write a book about that? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, there are lots of great books that are out there written to Christians about how to share the gospel with their non-Christian friends, how to evangelize. There's different programs, YouTube videos, there's all kinds of material for Christians about how to evangelize. And some of it's good, some of it's terrible, and everything in between. But there's precious little as far as uh, materials that are designed that a, a Christian could, that, to help a Christian build a conversation with their non-Christian friends, um, to be able to have, a, I think, an accurate, biblical, Jesus-centered conversation. And so... For our church, our church is called The Meeting House, I wanted to produce materials that, yes, a Christian could read and say, hey, this is refreshing me in the gospel, because the gospel is not just the message that people are saved by, it's the message that saved people should live by. And so I want Christians to be able to read it and say, yeah, this is refreshing me, but hopefully the endpoint destination is for them to think of two or three friends that they might then want to do a book club with or just pass it on to and say, here's a book that's helping me. I'm relearning some things or learning some things anew. I'd love to share this with you and turn it into a conversation. And there, we could probably name on one hand good books that are in a category like that, written so they could be easily digestible by our non-Christian friends. And so um, I've, I've written two books now. Both of them are, are trying to do double duty so that Christians can read it and feel like they're eavesdropping on a conversation with their non-Christian friends. I really like that perspective. Um, I I read through it being a Christian, and it um, it edified me, and it's certainly one mm. um, that I would recommend to somebody who is uh, exploring Christianity. So I, I think you hit the nail on the head with it. Oh, that's neat. Well, I notice in the New Testament, this ministry of reminding is something that is an ongoing theme. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, and at the beginning, he speaks about wanting. He's eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel to them. But the them he's talking about is the church. He's writing to Christians, and yet he wants to refresh them with the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts by saying, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. So he's already been there in Corinth to preach to them, and he wants to come back and, and preach it again. And, and Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter 1. He, he says, I want, to, I want to always remind you of these things, 2 Peter 1, 12. 12 and onward, I want to always remind you of these things, even though you are firmly established in this truth that you now have. So even well-established Christians, the early leaders of the church said, whenever we get a chance to talk gospel, whenever we get a chance to remind ourselves of the basics of what we believe, it's going to be important to have this ongoing ministry of reminding. I think that's really important. And even, um, I think in our context, I think you'd agree with this, not just reminding, but maybe even reframing or, or redefining mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, because the gospel is a term that's thrown around by everybody, right? Because if you have the gospel, it's sort of like a, um, I don't know, a skeleton key or a, you know, everybody wants to be gospel centered or gospel centric (laughs) or um, gospel focused and all of these things. Uh, And I think one of the things that we've recognized is that it's a term that's thrown around a lot, but, um, but rarely defined and maybe even rarely defined well. What do you, what do you think about that? Oh yeah. Amen. And I like what you said about kind of rephrasing because that's, that's what discipleship was thought to be in ancient times, both Hebraic discipleship and in Greek philosophy, the student was genuinely a disciple of the master when the student was able to take the master's teaching and rephrase it, uh, shorten longer sentences and lengthen short, shorter concepts, connect the dots on different thoughts. And, and, and because if it was just a matter of parroting back whatever the master taught, that didn't show that the student was actually learning the concepts. They were just memorizing words. And, and that's why we call it parroting because any parrot, an untrained parrot can can you know regurgitate what it's taught to say but for for real discipleship to happen we don't just quote scripture i think it's important we first learn the phrases of scripture so that we're getting the way it was originally phrased inside of us but that's just step one once we do that i think step two would actually be listen to how other brothers and sisters in the face faith have begun to paraphrase the scripture and then stage three is can i paraphrase it myself? Can I turn it into my own words and communicate it to others? And that's when real discipleship is is coming. It was taking full circle. Wow, that's uh, uh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I'm going to think back to my days in school, right? And, and I think there, that's true. We can we can memorize facts, uh, but memorizing facts isn't isn't transformative <laughs> and, and they fall away pretty quickly. It, uh, but until you can put it in your own words, um, you know, writing writing mm-hmm. papers in seminary, um, it, it's not good enough to just quote the uh, the people that you're reading. You've got to be able to paraphrase that and, and synthesize it. Yeah, so uh, true. One of the things I just posted on my blog this week was encouraging people to have a gospel refresh, and that is to to go through those steps of, re- first of all, refresh yourself with scriptural ways the gospel is communicated. Then look at how different Christians who are wiser in the faith have paraphrased the gospel. I think sometimes even listening to paraphrases that I disagree with, that I think are emphasizing the wrong notes in the <laughs> in the symphony, that I, I, I think maybe that I don't disagree wholeheartedly and say this is wrong. I just think it's either incomplete or they're really, it's a bad mix. Um, in fact, they're emphasizing the minors and they're, they're leaving out what should be more emphasized. But even then, when I'm interacting with those mentally, that's helping my discipleship process. I'm just the thoughts of interacting with that. Where do I agree? Where do I disagree? Is helping me grow. And then lastly, to say, okay, now it's my turn. How am I going to paraphrase the gospel in a few different ways? And I'll tell you, every couple of months, I sit down and say, Bruxy, I, I'm not going to rely on, you know, I've written a book with, with, with hopefully some helpful paraphrases, some mental hooks, some rubrics, some ways to think about it. But every so often I stop and I say, okay, don't just regurgitate what now you've done. And <laughs> And say, how, what, if I had to start afresh, how might I rephrase the gospel today? Just to keep my mind engaging with the material, not falling into um, simple regurgitation. I think that's really powerful. Uh, and so tell us a little bit. I, I've heard a little bit of your story, but I don't know if our listeners has. Um, you, you've not always been where you are now theologically. Isn't that right? Oh, that's true. It's been a fun journey, man. Um, <laughs> I grew up... Uh, well, I've always been even within evangelical camp. I grew up Pentecostal, first of all. I'm really grateful for my Pentecostal background. It, it laid a, a good root system in me, but I always felt a little too 
non-Pentecostal to be a good Pentecostal. I don't know what you call it, too Baptist to be a good Pentecostal. But I just grew up with that. And I remember thinking, well, maybe this side of heaven, that's as, that's as much of a feeling of home as any Christian could ever hope to experience. So I'm just going to bloom where I'm planted. And I never thought I would ever not be at a Pentecostal church growing up. But I also just never fully felt like I fit in. I mean, I had some very experiential friends who really you know, typical what you might hear with Pentecostal conversation, saying things like, I just sensed the Holy Spirit here. And, and I would say, well, I, th I think the air conditioner just kicked in, or whatever. <laughs> or, sure. or they, you know, or we, we, I remember going on a mission trip and getting off the plane and one of my friends saying, ooh, I can sense the spiritual oppression in this country. I said, I think that's called humidity. That's, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a terribly judgment. Do you not sense it back at home? I mean, our materialism is pretty, pretty, uh, in our addiction, addiction entertainment center is pretty, um, <laughs> oppressive but anyway so I, I i'm really grateful for my pentecostal background but i always felt a little bit like there was a, a fit that wasn't quite working then i went to seminary and went through my calvinist phase so um i don't know people have their calvinist phase at seminary <laughs> basically i was a guy who had a lot of questions yeah. i have a brain that won't shut up i'm constantly processing things. I think I wore out a lot of youth pastors through my teen years just showing up in their <laughs> office. What about this? What about that? And so it really became a race for my brain. Whoever got there with some system of thought first huh. that could answer my questions won my loyalty. And it was in seminary. I went, I got my BA in psychology because I was trying to figure myself out. And then I went, <laughs> got my uh, master's theological studies because trying to figure my faith out basically mm -hmm. I used education as my therapy and I had a I had a professor a reformed he said he was reformed I didn't know what that was I thought he was confessing he'd gotten off of drinking or something and he, <laughs> and he said no I'm, this is systematic theology and I'm going to teach you the reformed way and he had an answer for everything it all fit together like different puzzle pieces all clicking click 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 and I felt like yes this is mentally satisfying my brain feels so alive and excited that I'm getting answers to questions and I have a system that fits together. And sure. I became uh, very Calvinistic in my thinking and I became an evangelist for Calvinism with my Arminian friends. And, wow. um, and it was during that season, uh, I also uh, took my first pastoral position as a 26 year old Pentecostal kid. I was hired at a Fellowship <laughs> Baptist Church. And in Canada, the Fellowship Baptists are like the conservative Baptists. That's like the John MacArthur Baptists. And I, okay. I was a pastor of, of a conservative Baptist church, and I was there for five years. Um, and I felt, I still didn't feel like I was fully clicking. I felt, you know, and now I'm starting to question this, and I'm starting to question that. <laughs> um, I, I remember I, I met with um, some Jehovah's Witnesses uh, once a week for a couple of years. We met every, every Wednesday afternoon for a wow. couple hours. You know, they knocked on my door once and I never let them escape. And um, <laughs> they would ask me questions. I'd ask them. And But what was interesting is um, when we got whenever they were like winning a conversation, they were winning the debate, it would seem they had um, or, or no, I'm probably the reverse. When they when I felt like I was winning, they had this ace up their sleeve they could throw down. They would say, how can you you Christians say you follow Jesus? Because history shows you have the tendency to kill each other for the sake Ooh. of of either denominational differences or for the sake of your earthly kingdom when your countries say you go to war. Oh, man. Uh, and so how can we say you're right, Bruxy? And I would always get stuck there and say, 
that's true. Like the Christian church has a history. You know, the Catholics were violent. The Protestants who said, well, we follow scripture instead of the Pope <laughs> were no less violent, right? They're, following the Bible has not borne the fruit right. of the peace, the way of peace that Jesus taught. Wow. Because there's just, if you, if you lay it all out as a flat revelation, you can draw from different parts of it to justify anything. Wow. And, and so I, it was interesting. I fell in love with the peace teaching of Jesus Hmm. But I, I didn't know who to tell that to because I, <laughs> it, it, it was because Jehovah's Witness had challenged me. And if I thought, well, if, <laughs> if, if, it, if, it, if I got here because a cult has challenged me and I, I'm finding they're the only ones who actually follow this, this doesn't bode well for this being true, but I'm stuck. Sure. And then, yeah, after about five years of being a, a kind of a Calvinist, conservative Baptist, but with these questions starting to bubble up and what mm -hmm. is... What is God really like and how does Jesus really show us who God is like rather than starting with God and his glory and his sovereignty and his omnipotence and then working my way down to Jesus. If I start to Jesus with Jesus as God's ultimate revelation of himself and let Jesus introduce me to the father, I was my theology was shifting because wow. of that, but I didn't know where to put it. I wasn't going to become a Jehovah's Witness. And so <laughs> I, I was just kind of stuck being a um just like, again, I thought, well, I guess this side of heaven, I'll never feel like I'm quite home, and sure. this is where I'll stay. Sure. And then I finally um, found out about kind of Anabaptist Christians who uh, were part of a very Jesus-centered, radical Reformation on mm. the heels of the Protestant Reformation. They were basically the students of the Protestant Reformers, who once the Reformers said, you need to get the Bible uh, you need to get reading the Bible and get the Bible into you. They started reading the Bible and then turned to their Protestant professors and said, you're not following Jesus. So uh, now you got us reading the Bible. Thank you very much. And and so they were considered a third way, neither Protestant nor Catholic, and were persecuted by both. And um, and I, I kind of got introduced to that tradition. And that's where I've been ever since. And no tradition's perfect, and I'm not sure. here just to say Anabaptism is where you have to be. But God has used now this radical reformation of the early 1500s, the, the Anabaptists, to, to help challenge my faith and, and give me a home to, to kind of settle on a Jesus-centered uh, belief. Yeah, wow, that's a great story. I, and I think <laughs> uh, it, it seems like it, it mirrors my story a bit coming from... Um, you know, sort of a, a very, I mean, a very Bible-centric um, denomination. And even in seminary, right, uh, I, I found myself really pushing against some some Jesus-centered stuff, I think. Um, and and we're, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be interviewing Brian Zahn, and I need to make him a formal uh -huh. apology. Because uh, I think when I was in seminary, I think I called him a Marcionite. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, just because I was, I was bumping up against this stuff. And then in the last few years, um, as I've really begun to understand by, um, you know, listening to him and, and Greg Boyd and you and, and others and realizing, oh, oh, maybe this really is. Uh, so, I, you know, I think I've got to go back and maybe make some apologies to some people <laughs> I talked about in my seminary days. Um, but but it, what it, it, it is interesting that many conservative Christians have only really thought in terms of two possibilities, conservative and liberal. Mm -hmm. And if you do not have the markers and the language Sometimes there's, there's certain phrases that are like comfort food, theological comfort <laughs> food. And if I don't hear you emphasize sovereignty and inerrancy and some of certain buzzwords that feel like theological comfort food to me that prove you're conservative, 
I have been trained, this is true for many Christians, I've been trained to think, well, the only option is you're somehow a liberal and you're mm -hmm. trying to import a disrespect for Scripture and a, mm -hmm. and, a, and a lack of appreciation for how great our God is if you don't use the word sovereignty enough. For if, and, and so there's a suspicion that immediately kicks in and that can that suspicion can come from a really good place because all yeah. all we know are those two options that you're you must be as someone who's disrespectful and and who doesn't care about the true God of the Bible and and to be introduced to this third way this is actually no it's it there's no disrespect it is actually just a heightened falling in love that falling in love with Jesus is oh it it, it changes everything and it and no, your appreciation for everything else does not diminish one iota it's just jesus starts to ascend in your thinking in beautiful ways and you see how everything else is now even more valuable in how it points to jesus and leads you to jesus and and you realize that uh, I, I just become more grateful for scripture now as i've learned that scripture i don't just follow the bible i allow the bible to point to jesus and then i follow jesus and that is such a, a subtle but important distinction. And, and we'll get into that, I think, a little bit more as we talk about your book. Uh, so as I, as I hear you tell your story, um, the thing it makes me think about is, hey, maybe there is hope for Calvinists. Uh, <laughs> I, I say that as a joke. We, we like to poke lighthearted fun um, at our... We, we, we really do believe our Calvinist brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters, but... Uh, yes, we, we like absolutely. To have some, and I... some, some... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I've learned so much from their rigorous clear-headed desire for clear-headed thinking um, and for um, a real rigorous attention to the detail of scripture and I and they always spur me on as brothers and sisters should where I become disappointment disappointed is on either side when when either either view whether it's Calvinist or any form of non-Calvinism traditionalism Arminianism Anabaptism starts to see the other side as as non-family, as non-Christian, as heretical, because we disagree about how we phrase our loyalty to Jesus versus Scripture, etc. Then I, I think, oh, I, I, well, they make baby Jesus weep. I think. Yeah, and that's such a, such an important distinction. There, there's a difference between, you know, in-family dialogue and debate, and and then you know, outright um, war or, or whatever you want to call it. And I think we need to. When we have these conversations, as serious as they may be, we need to realize that they are in-house conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, we're you know we're going to be spending eternity together, so we might as well start trying to practice that now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, psychologists say some of the marks of a healthy family are number one, does the family laugh together, but number two, does the family argue together in respectful ways? Do they argue well together? And and Christians. Are, have shown sometimes that we're healthy and sometimes we're just not a very healthy family. We do not, we should be able to have an argument with among family members around the dinner table without fear of who's going to get kicked out after dinner's over. And, and that's not something that Christians have modeled well. We, we have such potential to show the power of the cross of Christ to build together one new humanity, as Ephesians 2 says, when we show that he pulls together people who approach many things differently but still hold Christ in the center. And so when I can talk to a fellow Christian who really disagrees with me on many things, but we can show how we disagree respectfully and in unity, I think now there's a glimpse of the kingdom of Christ. There's a gospel moment that I hope the world sees. And, um, and yet there's just too many Christians, I think, who jump, who play the heresy card all too quickly <laughs> once they hear someone say something that, that, that 
um, they don't agree with. Oh, that's so important. Yeah. In that, I mean, I think it talks about uh, how we need to maybe redefine unity, where, where unity does not necessarily mean 100% agreement on every issue. We, we need to we need to find out what our true unity is. You know, that old that old quote that's you know attributed to John Wesley, although it probably wasn't him, right? Uh, in essentials, um, unity. In now, I'm forgetting it. Um, in non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, I and I think the the older I get, and the more I read, the the smaller that list of essentials I think becomes. Um, like, mm-hmm. and it, it gets down to Jesus, right? Do we do we yeah. agree about Jesus? And after that, there's there's room at the table for disagreement. Um, and I've mm-hmm. been I've been bad at that myself. I mean, as I as I get older, I think I hopefully get a little bit wiser and start to become maybe a little bit more patient and understanding and welcoming. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And and that, uh, I, I say this to our pastors here at the Meeting House. We have a number of pastors on staff, and and uh, whenever they get a chance to speak, I always say there every sermon that you preach is going to have a, pr- a product and a byproduct hmm. that is an intended outcome and kind of the unintended outcome that it feels like it's just going to happen on the side without you naming it so the product is going to be whatever your topic is Uh, let's say you want to teach on why you think women can be in leadership or you want to teach on complementarianism and why you don't think either way Uh, if that your product your your intended outcome is that you have been clear about your position and you hope if you're a pastor that you have been convincing and your congregation is being uh, led in the direction of your church distinctives but the byproduct is hopefully increased unity in the body of Christ. And that's going to happen through tone and through the way you talk about the, the other position with which you disagree. Uh, and so we have an opportunity with every sermon to, to have a, a, an intended outcome on the topic, whatever the topic is, but a byproduct that increases the unity in the church by how we talk about those we disagree with. So when I teach on, say, egalitarianism, which I, I believe in strongly, and I believe it is where this where scripture points us and what Jesus would want for his body, I first take a few minutes to look at some scriptures and talk about the church down the street that teaches complementarianism and why I don't think it's just a, they're being a good old boys club who don't like women, but giving them the benefit of the doubt, why they believe they're being biblical, the passages that are important to them, and help our congregation understand them better and to know that we share a similar heart of wanting what's true and what's right. Then I can go on and say why I think these brothers and sisters are wrong and have interpreted things incorrectly, but I've, I've tried to breathe a sense of unity in the body of Christ and help uh, help them understand that we're 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 one we're one family, and we can have this disagreement in a way that strengthens the family rather than divides it. Man, that that's that's so wise. And I don't know if the air conditioning just went off or if that's conviction <laughs> I'm feeling, but I think it might be the latter in this case. <laughs> um, hopefully, well, you I know, can... and it's and I love your humor. By the way, you guys, your humor is fantastic because <laughs> you humor is one of those ways that you get to say, "See, this is what family does." We get to poke at each other. So I'm not advocating for kind of a walking on eggshells. We got to keep this, the unity, but actually sure. robust disagreement, argument, debate, and even uh, kind-hearted humor yeah. that says this is what family does with each other. Welcome to the party. That's good. That's good. Yeah, we yeah. we agree, um, and we think yeah. if we can if we can laugh together, and sometimes you know at each other's expense, but you know yeah. lovingly. Um, yeah. 
you know, because who, who doesn't pick on family members, right? I mean, <laughs> totally, totally. I'm going to pick on my sister. But then if, if, a, if a brat at school picks on her, then I come to her defense. That's right. Nobody picks on her but me. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. So, so in your book, you, you break down the gospel in one word, the gospel in three words, and then the gospel in 30 words. And the gospel in one word, um, it, it, it's a word that begins with J. <laughs> and this might blow a lot of people's minds, but it's not justification. Uh, so we, we just want to give you a chance right now to, to publicly repent. <laughs> right. Uh, no, so, so what is the gospel in one word, Brexit? Sure. Well, even just so I can say about the whole justification thing, it is just worth acknowledging that the Protestant Reformation was reacting to something wrong in the church. And when you have a reactionary theology, you will tend to overemphasize the solution to the thing you're reacting against, but that mm. doesn't mean that you have nailed the best presentation of the gospel for all time. Right. So just, I grew up thinking, how could the gospel be anything else other than justification by faith? And I wouldn't say it's something else. I would just say it's something greater than, it's more glorious than, and it includes justification. But the Anabaptists didn't emphasize imputation, Im imputed righteousness, which is righteousness that's reckoned to a guilty sinner that is declared over you. You are righteous, even though we all know you're still guilty of the crime. <laughs> uh, the charges are dropped. I mean, that is true. You are justified. Um, you are declared not guilty. But the Anabaptist said, yes, but what about impartation, not just imputation, which mm. is that God goes beyond declaring you not guilty, and he actually makes you not guilty. He remakes your heart. He births a new spirit in you and gives you his spirit. These are promises that the uh, 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 prophet Ezekiel said, a new heart, a new spirit, and then God's spirit coming into us. And so we are actually reborn and remade. Um, he, he who knew no sin takes our sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ, mm. not just declared not guilty, but becoming not guilty and freshly born uh, souls. And that's that newness of creation, the healing of our sin, not just the declaration that we're not going to get punished for it, is is a, an aspect of the gospel that sometimes is underrepresented. The hmm. Regeneration, not just justification. And so, um, yeah, so justification, I understand why the Protestants were emphasizing that, but we who have grown up post-Protestant Reformation in Protestant circles, we have to remember that we have inherited a way of communicating the gospel that 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 was important for the time, but is not necessarily the the best way moving forward to emphasize. It's again, all the notes are there in the symphony, but sometimes when you emphasize the wrong notes, the the desired outcome is not what the composer had in mind. That's a that's a really great metaphor, yeah. uh, a, a yeah. good picture. And I think we, I think we sometimes do the same thing with scripture that we do with the Protestant Reformation, and we think that mm. that scripture and or the Reformation happened in a vacuum, um, mm. and mm -hmm. we. You know, we sometimes forget that every every document we have, especially in the New Testament, was occasional, right? Yeah. It was written to a particular group of people for in a particular time for a particular reason, addressing particular things. Mm. Um, not that there isn't universal truth from that that can be um, gleaned out and reapplied, uh, but right. the same thing with you know with Martin Luther and John Calvin and yeah. um, all these others as they were responding to something. Right. When we understand the reformers' teaching in context, just like when we understand the apostles' teaching in context, then we will get what becomes the transferable principle for all time in every place. Uh, but first, you have to understand what they're saying in context, not just the words that they're saying, but the meaning behind the message. 
Um, so you asked me about the gospel in one word. No, it's not justification. It's Jesus. That's the J word. Uh, I, that means that when we're having a conversation about God in general and about love and about light and all these good things, they may be wonderful conversations. They're just not gospel conversations until you're talking about the person of Jesus. It's not gospel. Mark 1.1 1, 1 starts by saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus or the good news of Jesus. And then he goes on not just to provide a snappy soundbite, but to <laughs> tell the whole story of Jesus. And it's actually because of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that all of what we now know as the four gospels were called the four gospels. Because Mark called his Greco-Roman biography of the life of the Messiah, he called it a gospel, a good news story. So, so we now say first thing to note is that jesus is at the center of the gospel whatever that is we know it's going to be about jesus and we need to begin to engage people in jesus conversations if we're going to have gospel conversations so that's that's the gospel in one word and you point out in your book and, and we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast and it's pretty becoming more and more well known that that this word gospel and the the greek word behind it euangelion actually had some pretty um, specific socio-political connotations mm. in its day, um, yeah. right? That there, there is actually, there's an aspect of gospel that was uh, people, when they talked about gospel, they were talking about Caesar. Um, and so when we yes. talk about um, the, the gospel of Jesus, there's this political aspect that we're, in a sense, almost setting up Jesus um, against the, the political ruler of the day, saying that Jesus really is the true and, and rightful king. Uh, yeah. Oh, amen. Amen. And so, first of all, it's a matter of where do your loyalties lie? Mm. Uh, and, and the fact that Jesus is the rightful king, he calls us into a whole new way of living here and now. It's not just about one day entering his kingdom when we die, but he becomes our king now. He becomes our Lord now. That changes everything about how we live in the present, which is also good news that my life takes on new purpose and meaning and direction starting now. That's beautiful. Uh, you brought up Mark, and, and when you mm -hmm. read the first chapter of Mark, we actually hear that Jesus announces the good news. In Mark chapter 1, um, mm -hmm. verses 14 and following, Mark writes, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, uh, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. And then afterwards in verse 15, it says, um, you are justified. No, <laughs> uh, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so if if Jesus preaches the gospel, and that's how Mark summarizes it, what is the danger with just distilling it down to something like justification? Does that mean then that we can't mm -hmm. rightly say that Jesus preached the gospel if, if we don't see justification in, in, that, in those terms right. in his teaching? Right. Now, justification then becomes one aspect of of the beauty, multifaceted aspect of what Jesus accomplishes for us. But justification doesn't exist out there as some kind of nebulous floating cloud of idea mm. that we can reach out for. Um, we reach for Jesus. And Jesus, he is, when, when we make Jesus our Lord, I mean, the Apostle Paul said, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Not when you confess Jesus is Savior. When you mm. embrace him as Lord, as the king, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. And we tell people at the meeting house that we're not inviting you to ask Jesus to be your savior. We're <laughs> inviting you to bend the knee to Jesus as Lord. And the good news is when you embrace him as Lord of your life, you get him a savior as part of the package. Yeah. And that's fantastic. But we, 
we start off with Jesus as the rightful king, and that, that changes our perspective on everything as we, we walk through our daily lives. And that leads us to your, your gospel in three words, which is, of course, mm-hmm. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Uh, what, is, what does that mean, to, Lord? That's not a term that we use very mm-hmm. regularly in no, our culture. No, it's true. It was you know, more common Middle Ages, lords and ladies, but yeah. uh, it was, it's fallen into disuse now. To say that Jesus is Lord, well, let me paraphrase. One of the things that we would say to people here at the Meeting House is, when you invite Jesus to be your Lord, when you submit to Jesus as Lord, you're saying you're the one who has the right to tell me how to live. Hmm. You're the one who has the right to tell me how to live. So well, let's start there with one of the harder aspects. But Jesus said, go count the cost before you come and follow me. <laughs> yes, the Apostle Paul said it's a free gift of grace, but he wrote that to Christians who had already given up so much and you know might have to die for their ongoing faith. He said, listen, don't get full of yourselves. It's a free gift of grace. But Jesus would add to that, yes, free gift of grace, but you front end load that by laying down your life and giving up everything to follow me. So um, to say Jesus is Lord is to say you're the one who has the right to tell me how to live. You are my master. Uh, you are my leader and Lord. Uh, what it also can mean, because Lord was used as a word that was a stand-in word for Yahweh, referring to God, it can mm-hmm. also mean that Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Mm. So to say Jesus is Lord is a is to say you're my king and I'm going to follow you with loyalty. It's also to say as I follow you, I realize you're also the Lord in that you are showing me who God is mm. and who is a creative force behind this universe. Um, that I can see most clearly in the face of Christ, in the life of Christ, in the teachings of Christ. And he is shockingly gentle and kind and gracious and embracing. And, and to say that's the force behind all of creation, it changes even the sense of the universe that I live in. To say that I, I, I wake up every day in a, in a different world with a different mindset if, if Jesus is showing me what God is like. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm. So, so count the cost. That's not something you you see on a whole lot of uh, evangelism. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, in, in your, your evangelism classes, you don't hear like, "Hey, tell people that they should count the cost between following Jesus." What What do you make of that? <laughs> yeah, so true. Well, it's funny because Jesus has people come to him, preloaded, ready with faith, saying, "I will follow you, Jesus." And his only response, Jesus turns around and says, well, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you want to follow me? I don't even know where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. Uh, are you sure you're up for this? I mean, that is his evangelistic pitch. This, <laughs> it, it feels like it could be a Billy Graham moment right there and then. Right. <laughs> and the organ will play, and we'll pray the sinner's prayer. And instead, he says, nah, no, I don't think you're ready. And then in Luke's gospel, he teaches that if someone says, I'm ready, I want you got to tell them specifically to count the cost. In other words, if someone says, I'm ready to build a build a building, I want to build a monument of my faith in Jesus, they first have to figure out whether or not they have enough funding to complete the process, which, you know, symbolically, do I have really the full commitment to, to follow it through? Because if not, he says, the problem is that a person, a builder, will get a monument half-built, and then they'll run out of funding, they'll run out of fuel, and now it's worse than if they had never committed because you now have a half-built monument to failure. Mm-hmm. And in the spiritual terms, I, I can remember when I was younger, in my zeal, I had many friends pray the sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. I was an evangelistic chap. I yeah. Street evangelism, door-to-door evangelism, brought friends to church uh, to, for every evangelistic sermon that there was, including there's a presentation called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames that <laughs> was really this powerful, emotive um, 
a presentation to get people to avoid hell and turn to Jesus. And I had brought so many friends who would pray a sinner's prayer at some emotional event. And then the next morning at school, they kind of had kind of buyer's remorse. It was like it was like spiritual hangover from getting drunk with fear the night before that they had to pray a prayer to get out of hell. That they, they would say, I don't know what I did last night. I and no, they didn't want to they didn't want to come back to church next week. They weren't now passionately excited about Jesus. They, the problem was is that we never got them to count the cost. We used emotional manipulation to get them to pray a quick prayer based on fear. And then Afterwards, and then years later now, someone can come back to them and say, try Jesus, he'll change your life. <laughs> to which they can respond, you know what, I did and he didn't. <laughs> and I say, oh no, that's that half-built monument yeah. to failure. Yeah. And we should have slowed down and said, I don't know if you, if you think it's that easy and you're just going to pray a prayer right now, you need to go away and think about whether you're willing to see your whole life change yeah. because of this commitment. Oh man. It makes me think of the early church. You know, I know there's a lot of appeals to the early church, and I'm not saying we should go back to everything they did, but they, they did have a a robust uh, catechism, right? Where if you mm. wanted to get baptized, you know, you had to, they sort of put you through the ringer a little bit, whereas I think we've sort of gone the opposite direction. You know, you come and we'll baptize you this morning. Um, yeah, yes. You know, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but they, they had this expectation that, uh, to be baptized was to incorporate also a, a genuine life change. Um, and in evangelicalism, it seems like maybe we uh, have have some room to grow in terms of a, of a robust catechism. Yeah, amen. And that's what I love about these three words that the Apostle Paul says are central to the gospel. Jesus is Lord. When we confess that, believe God raised him from the dead, we are saved. Um, I love that First of all, it's Jesus. That's the historical figure, not just Christ as a concept or Messiah, but Jesus of Nazareth. So it's mm. rooted in history and, and is. Paul could have said was, and he would have been at least partially accurate. He could have said, you know, Jesus, while he was here on earth, he was Lord, mm -hmm. and we follow his teachings uh, as a as an honor, to honor his memory. But the fact that it's present tense, Jesus is Lord, and Paul's writing decades after Jesus was physically here is again to to say that he's alive now he's leading us now there is a real person who we are really engaged with who is still showing us what god is like today and he is the lord of my life this is an exciting movement to be a part of he really is so what how do you respond because i'm i'm sure you've heard some of the same things that we have and people say well that that just becomes a man-centered, works-based salvation. How, what's your response to that criticism? I, I'd have to ask some questions. What universe are you living in, anyway? When, <laughs> uh, is there, is, what about this is man-centered? This is our opportunity to submit to Jesus as our king, as our leader. Um, it's also a gift, but where is... As where is responding to a gift by receiving it ever considered a work? That you're you're just making stuff up now. <laughs> In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul contrasts the way of works and the way of faith. He he actually contrasts them. So from a biblical point of view, faith and works are opposite. So when I say I'm receiving this by faith, I'm trusting that it's true, and then my my Christian friend comes along and says, well, if you're claiming that you're trusting, you're turning faith into a work, I would say, no, no, faith is not a work. Uh, you're, the Apostle Paul says it's the opposite of works, <laughs> but it's still something we do. Instead of working, we, when, 
when disciples came to Jesus in John's gospel and they said, tell us the work that we should do to honor God. And Jesus says, here's the work that you should do. Just trust. In other mm. words, there is no work you have to do. You just simply trust, but it's still a thing you do. But it's, it's not a religious effort. It's just simply trusting. And you're freed up to do that. Mm. And in, not in scripture or in any discourse that I'm aware of in culture is simply receiving a gift considered a work. I feel like that's a case for someone's uh, theology overriding uh, both scripture, the contrast faith and works, and then also just basic reasonable thinking and how language works. <laughs> That's a good response. <laughs> uh, so I, I was having a conversation recently with somebody, um, and I'd like to get your opinion on this. The, the relationship between salvation and vocation, um, and it seems like in evangelicalism, we have drawn a sharp distinction maybe between the two, that there's, there's saved and then there's what you do. And my contention, and I think you'll agree with this, maybe you won't, is that, that really those things are, are two sides of the same coin. Um, hmm. But, you know, in terms of what we're called to do and who we're called to be and being saved, how do you see those as either being interrelated or not? Well, uh, tell me, so I, I like this where you're headed. And can you unpack it more? The the idea of how they are related from your perspective. Well, sure. You know, when I th when I think of salvation, and I think all the way throughout, even you know, in the Old Testament, uh, that God's plan was to save Israel for a purpose. That He selected right. them out um, to be His representatives to the uh, whole world, yes. to shine yes. as a light to the nations, represent His love. Um, and they sort of, they miss that aspect of it by becoming sort of inward focused and just dwelling on themselves that we're, we're not just saved to be saved, to go to heaven when we die, but that we're salvation is actually being, um, almost restored to our mm. original intent, which is yes. to represent God. Yeah. Um, and so we, we have a vocation, we have a calling, we have things that we're supposed to do, and that's what we're saved for, that these things, that you really can't have one without the other. Um, mm. Whereas I think some in some versions of evangelicalism, you can be saved and know you're going to heaven, and then your vocation is sort of optional at that point. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. So uh, really, all we're, we're just sheep who are called to save more sheep who will save sheep who will save more sheep. Uh, yes, but... But right, the gospel is that we are being saved to something. Um, we're not just being saved away from something, punishment, wrath, hell. We're being saved to something. And this idea of the kingdom uh, speaks, I think, to this vocation, that we, we enter into the kingdom now. It stretches on into eternity, absolutely, but it doesn't start when we die. It starts now. So so that we ha we're saved to a new purpose of life, which is embedded in the human identity from the beginning of Scripture, that we are made in God's image and God's likeness. I don't think that we can spend enough time plumb uh, plumbing the depths of that, that God should make within his animal kingdom beings that are actually made like himself in finite form and place them within that animal kingdom. That's wild! You know, that he already had a petting zoo and he wanted to go beyond pets <laughs> to having people, persons who are like him, image and likeness of God. What a risk and what a what a high calling it is for us that we have the opportunity to kind of amplify God's character and love to all creation. So God is everywhere. He is sustaining his creation, but he has his image bearers here to amplify that, to represent that, and to each other, to amplify, to... Um, to increase 
uh, an experience of God's love and God's character on the planet. This is an amazingly high calling that humanity has been entrusted with. Jesus comes not only as God to show us what God is like, but then to show us what true humanity should be like and can be like. To help reintroduce us to ourselves. He not only introduces <laughs> us to God as the Father, but to say, hey humans, this is what you could be like. This is your calling. And I want to save you out of your distracted, disoriented experience of what it means to be human and save you into an experience of your original calling. That's, that's a beautiful message. That that's good. Not it's not just what we're saved from, but it's what we're saved to. And and too often, I think we we miss that that second mm. half of it. Yeah, maybe that's why in the book of Acts, when you look at there's somewhere between fourteen to sixteen different examples of the gospel being preached in the book of Acts, depending on how you slice it. And when we look at them, one of the things that is curiously absent of gospel preaching in the New Testament church is any mention of hell. Oh, we have mm. to wonder, why would they? It's not that they didn't believe in it. What, I, I, what, whatever concept of hell you land on theologically, sure. that there was such a thing as hell is something the early church believed. Why wouldn't they play that card front and center whenever preaching the gospel? And it, it almost seems, I mean, there's got to be some reason. What One thing I can know, I can at least know, is that threats of punishment or details of suffering do not have to enter into my gospel presentation for motivational purposes. That Jesus should be enough. The vision we're inviting people to walk towards rather than away from should be enough of a motivator. Um, and once, you know, because it's an invitation into a love relationship, you don't need to motivate with threats. Uh, even a couple, there's twice, there's only twice in all these messages where even judgment is mentioned. And the Apostle Paul walks right up to the line to talk about, like in Acts 17, to mention that there is coming a day of judgment. But even then, he doesn't cross the line to kind of give you sizzling details of what that judgment might look like. It's, it's almost like saying, I know that I could switch your motivation. I could maybe get twice as many people to convert if I talked about threats of hell in vivid, torturous detail. Mm -hmm. But that would be the wrong motivation for inviting them into a love relationship with the God who created them. There's better motivation than that. That's so good. And when we forget that, it almost reduces us to just a fire insurance salesman. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. that, and that's not what we see. I, I love, if you've read um, N.T. Wright's The the Day the Revolution Began, mm. um, he, talk, he has this quote in there that I just go back to all the time. He says, we've platonized our eschatology. <laughs> Um, substituting souls going to heaven for the promise of new creation and have therefore moralized our anthropology, substituting a qualifying examination of moral performance for the biblical notion of human vocation with the result that we've paganized our soteriology, um, our understanding of salvation, substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath for the genuinely biblical notions that he explores later. Mm. Um, that's good only it, he can put it so well <laughs> right i know i know and it, it takes forever just to unpack like one sentence yes, yes. that's why his books take a year to read uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah they're like theological syrup you know <laughs> you, you, you got to add water just to be able to digest it yeah, yeah. Um, but that when all of these things aren't necessarily they're not necessarily wrong right you know hell isn't necessarily yeah. wrong no. but when we when we reduce it to to this this then it ought it becomes something that it was never intended to be Sure. Well, the Great Commission, Jesus gives himself as the only motivating factor for why we should fulfill it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. 
<laughs> that's it. Yeah. It's not people are lost and dying and on their way to hell. Therefore, go. You know, people are X, Y, and Z. Therefore, go. It's no, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm at the center of everything. That should be really good news. And therefore, based on that, go. And, and then we go, even our motivation for going is Jesus-centered, as is our message. Yeah, it, oh, that's so good. Um, it's not just what not just what we get away from, but it's what we get. We get Jesus, and, mm-hmm. and that, like mm-hmm. you said, that should be that should be good enough. And, and we don't yeah. just get Jesus in eternity, right? We get Jesus now, right? Um, it, you know, and, and what that means in terms of you know, you've probably seen the traffic. What that means in terms of justice now, mm-hmm. um, and what that means in terms of you know racial unity now, mm-hmm. um, bringing the kingdom forward. I you know I've heard some people say I can't put anybody to it right now but if if this is what it's going to look like in new creation every tribe and tongue worshiping together brothers and sisters in equality then shouldn't we at least to the best of our ability try to replicate that now mm, yeah um, oh absolutely and so then we're living in a way that that actually uh, well our churches become kind of outposts where people can experience a taste of a different kingdom that has a different culture. Every kingdom has its own culture, and our culture is identified by the fruit of the Spirit. And and so a culture is not just the rules of how to behave, but it's also the vibe, the feel of being in that foreign land. And the, the land of the kingdom of Christ, which we should experience whenever Christians gather together, uh, gives people an opportunity to kind of taste the culture of Jesus and to sense the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know, gentleness, self-control. These these are beautiful markers of the kingdom of Christ. Um, and sometimes we just don't emulate that very well <laughs> on Twitter or Facebook or in church. Sure. And, well, uh, it, you I, know, and I'm sure I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. But yeah, uh, we, all, we all do it imperfectly. It's true, but yeah. it's worth calling ourselves back to an excitement and a delight to model kingdom culture in our engagement with other Christians. Yeah. So just for a minute, what do you think, you know, cause the, again, to go back to the early church and not that mm. they're perfect, but, but they modeled this and in 300 years sort of overtook an empire without ever passing a law or swinging a mm. sword. Mm. Uh, and then for the, you know, the next 1700, um, we, the Christians have been um, trying to bring about the the kingdom, so to speak, through worldly means. And so, what's the difference between modeling the kingdom and and sort of legislating the kingdom? Mm, yeah, yeah. I understand that the king, concept of the kingdom can be confusing to those who are able to grasp for power. When the church has been able to taste power, the first thing that gets re defined is the kingdom because now the temptation is to think of the kingdom in in political terms in terms of force and power and geography that we're going to set up that kingdom in this country and this will be a christian country and then for a country in a fallen world for a physical country to exist you have to use violence or the threat of violence to either obtain the land and to maintain the land from invaders. And so there are so many compromises that start to be made in following Christ once we start to redefine the kingdom as this place here and now where where we will lead it politically. And, um, and, and so 
and, and then you need laws. You need laws for mm -hmm. a society to exist. I understand that. I don't begrudge my nation having laws, but I, I don't think that the Christian kingdom of Christ should be finding its example in a political kingdom where they rule by law. Because the kingdom of Christ changes hearts. So it's a bunch of citizens with changed hearts who should be discipled in how to live by love as opposed to the way of law. The Old Testament shows us an example of an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, a, a kingdom that that does have law, but the New Testament then is the way of love. And this is also the difference between the kingdom of Christ and the caliphate of Muhammad, hmm. that once it, the caliphate, the, the Muslim caliphate is very similar to the Old Testament theological political kingdom. The caliphate uh, is a national present, a worldly goal of Islam. That, and so Sharia law makes sense within a Muslim point of view. But Jesus doesn't give us Sharia law. He gives us Sharia love, mm. which is to say Sharia just means the way. Mm -hmm. And so he gives us not the way. It's an Arabic word for a way. He doesn't just give us the way of law. He gives us a way of love. It's a whole different way of learning how to relate to one another in the kingdom. And it gets polluted when we try and um, fuse that with any earthly political national identity. That's that's brilliant. Uh, I often hear people say, "Well, it, it was it was a different culture back then. They, it wasn't a democracy, and so we have to think about things differently now." But my response to that is often, "Well, if if Jesus had wanted to institute that, he certainly could have, right? He had mm -hmm. the power and the authority. He could have come in ruling with a sword. As a matter of fact, that's what everybody expected him to do, right. <laughs> um, right. and yes. he dis he disappointed them when he didn't. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily sure that that." That counts as an answer that just because we can um, through uh, through our system of government, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Uh, oh, absolutely no! It it it's the great temptation that you know, Jesus was faced with in um, in the wilderness, right. and the church has been faced with it ever since. That when we can taste power, and we you know at what price though to to get this nation back to god that kind of talk <laughs> when when was there ever any such thing as a christian nation <laughs> nations are not christian people are right. and in fact the church should be populated with people who are committed to being ambassadors to the nation of the united states of america or of canada or of whatever country we find ourselves in we are ambassadors to that nation we're not products of that culture that's a that's such a, a a good framework. You know, Paul tells us we are citizens of heaven. Uh, mm -hmm. You know that that's where our citizenship is, and that's not the old. You know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But it's more of a you know we are emissaries too. <laughs> um, yes, yes. You know, that's that's good. Well, no, I, right on. I, I want to be respectful of uh, your time, but if you could for just a couple of minutes, talk mm -hmm. to us a little bit about the relationship. You know, the 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 emphasis on. Um, the Bible and Jesus and, and how you see those um, interplaying with one another. Mm, yeah, it shouldn't be controversial to say what I'm about to say, but whenever I say it, there's somebody who is uh, thrown into a tizzy. <laughs> so let me say, as Christians, we should learn to read the Bible, study the Bible, understand the Bible, but we should do so so we can follow Jesus. Mm. We don't just follow the Bible. We let the Bible inform us on Jesus, absolutely, and then we follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. And he never compromises on that stand. 
Again, in the Great Commission, he is the one who has all authority. And he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Uh, he puts his teachings and his way and his authority at the center. He invites his disciples to follow him from the beginning. And yes, Scripture leads us to Jesus, much like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, and we're grateful for Scripture, but we don't just follow Scripture, we follow Jesus. Now this should be Christianity 101. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how we talked earlier how for some people they think there's only two options, conservatism and liberalism. Mm -hmm. And if you don't sound like a conservative, well, you must be trying to sneak in liberalism. <laughs> and, and no, I, I don't think, you know, conservatism and liberalism are man-made concepts. You know, Jesus leads us in a better way. And so I don't have to sound like a conservative, and I don't have to try and be a liberal. I can just say, Jesus frees me from having to identify with that tribe. So Jesus says to what I would identify as religious conservatives, people who follow the Bible, or at least try to or claim to. Jesus says to them in John 5, he says that the Father has sent me, but you've never heard his voice nor seen his form. This is John 5:37. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form. And then verse 38, nor does his word dwell in you. Hmm. Wow. So they knew, they knew scripture. They had scripture in them. Yeah. They memorized scripture. And yet Jesus says the word of God does not dwell in you because you haven't believed in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you can study the scriptures, but until you let them lead you to me, um, you don't have life. And in fact, you not only don't have life, you don't have the word of God until you have allowed the Bible to lead you to Jesus. It's not the word of God to you then, it's just another book. Until you have the full, complete journey to Christ. So, you know, I, I, I said this recently and I had somebody say, this is you've heard of mansplaining you know guys <laughs> just trying to always poke i think there's evangelical splaining uh -huh. um right where do they just got to pop as soon as you say well we need to remember to follow jesus the pop in and say yeah but remember you got to study the bible <laughs> if you're going to follow jesus <laughs> yep yeah i know yep. um, but they're threatened by any christocentrism rather than bibliocentrism because it just doesn't feel conservative enough and and so I, I hope that there could be a new generation of Christians who will have the courage to follow Christ. And someone says, are you just splitting hairs? Is this just verbal game playing? And I'd say, no, our, our words matter here because, when pe because remember, the Protestant Reformation claimed to follow Scripture. And they got a lot of things right, but on some key Jesus-centered points, they missed the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. They were equally violent uh, as, the, as their um, Catholic counterparts because they said we follow the Bible. Sure, if you follow the Pope, the Pope can tell you to go to war and to burn heretics. Mm -hmm. But if you say, well, we don't follow the Pope, we follow the Bible, the Bible can tell you to go to war and to kill heretics. Mm -hmm. the, if you follow the Bible, it doesn't, necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily end with Jesus in the center until you see it as the stepping stone to Christ. And then we don't put the Bible away. Every day we're reading the Bible, mm -hmm. but so that it can lead us to Jesus. And that changes everything. That's so important because, and that's not just a straw man argument. I mean, the Bible has mm. been used to justify uh, forms of genocide and slavery and mistreatment of uh, of certain groups of people in real life. Where this isn't something like a hypothetical. Um, it's right. been used that no. way. No, this is a matter of life and death for the church, right. quite literally. And you know, I, I said this recently online. You know, study the Bible. Just remember to follow Jesus. And someone said. What's the difference between the Bible and Jesus? And I had to ask, is that a serious question? I mean, one is God's guidebook for life, and the other is our Lord and Savior. We, 
The very fact that people have to ask, what's the difference between the Bible and Jesus, tells me that they have so exalted Scripture mm -hmm. to the place of Christ that they're having a hard time even conceiving of Jesus and the Bible being somehow different. But the Bible didn't die on the cross for our sins. The Bible is not the king of our kingdom. The Bible is our way of seeing Jesus, who is. But then we pledge our loyalty to King Jesus. That's that's so important. Because if, if you frame it that way, there's just... At that point, it's automatically you, you. You can't you can't use Jesus to justify bombing um, people that you don't like. <laughs> there's just there's nothing yeah. in there. Um, but you can use the Bible for that. Um, mm. I, and and even our conservative or Calvinist friends would would agree that that would be misusing the Bible. At least a lot of them would. Um, yeah. But yeah. if you when I was in college, I remember um, a, a class on um, you know just systems and um, like. Uh, process management and there's this there's this Japanese term I think it's called it's called pokoyoke um, which means it's a it's a fail safe um, mm -hmm. where you know one of those would be like in the you don't clip um, fingernails in the in the NICU um, for you know neonatal infants because you might accidentally clip off a finger so you you institute this pokoyoke right uh, hmm. maybe like you said a, um, a Christian 101 or Christian pokoyoke is is you follow Jesus because you can't you can't really misuse Jesus to, to hurt people that'd be very very difficult <laughs> right right I mean I, anything's possible but uh, <laughs> but it is so true that when just watch for telltale signs when people have overlaid scripture with Jesus and they confuse the two they'll start to talk about scripture the way we really should talk about Jesus so we'll talk about the scripture as our final authority I would say no it's not your ultimate authority it's a penultimate authority mm. it's it's your authority in print to point you to your authority in person mm. but then the the ultimate authority is Jesus all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Again, as soon as I say that, my conservative friends say, yeah, but where did you read that? You read that in the Bible, as though they've somehow caught me in something that doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense. The Bible points us to Jesus, but make sure we follow Jesus. That shouldn't be controversial within Christian circles. It has become controversial since the Protestant Reformation, and I would love to call the church to repent and to follow Jesus again. In a, and you are, um, you know, again, I, I mean, this has been my own journey uh, in the last five years when I adopted a truly, um, you know, Jesus-centric hermeneutic. Um, I had no choice at that point but to really, it, it, mm. for my belief, to, to embrace um, nonviolence. Um, mm. Before mm. that, I could, um, I could come up with reasons why the Bible said, but then when I really said, okay, well, if Jesus is the center, if Jesus is Lord and, and not the whole Bible, mm -hmm. um, then I have no choice, really, because you, you you cannot yeah. simultaneously love someone and kill them. <laughs> oh, right. So true. Oh, my goodness. Can we just do a podcast on that someday? You're, you're really touching on something important. Hey, um, so I'm being told that I need to get to my next appointment. Yes. I, time has flown, and this was a lot of fun. Well, Bruxy, thank you so much for your time. Again, uh, you're the author of Reunion, which uh, you can find lots of places. And you just came out with a new, um, what you're calling, was it Anabaptist Alpha? Is that how you're calling it? Yeah, Anabaptist <laughs> Alpha course. That's right, the um, Reunion Study Guide. Yeah. It's an eight-week course that just helps Christians and non-Christians come together and commit to a to eight weeks of learning the core message of Jesus. And where can seeing... people find that? 
Amazon or anywhere you buy books. Very good. Well, we'll make sure we link that uh, in our both your book and the study guide in the notes to the show. Bruxy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, just a pleasure chatting with you. I hope we can do it again soon. Thomas, I would be happy to hang out with you guys anytime. Really appreciate it. All right. God bless you, brother. All the best to you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that was Bruxy Cavey, the uh, teaching pastor at the Meeting House, author of Reunion. Uh, should pick it up. Once again, thank you for listening to The Synergists, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. 